If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 as we continue in our series and study of this book and what it means to have the joyful life. Are you familiar with the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Okay, he's that tax collector who Jesus, uh, he's, you know, he's the one who scampered up the sycamore tree to see Jesus. Jesus called him down, entered his house, and salvation came to Zacchaeus's home and life that day. On that day, Jesus made his own purpose statement for life. Did you know that? After the salvation of Zacchaeus, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the what? Say it. The lost. Have you ever been lost? Hmm? Most of you probably have it one way or... I mean, really lost. I mean, the most... I mean, the most vivid time that comes to my mind I was about 13 years old. We were at Yellowstone National Park... I was with a friend, and we were, try, we were trying to impress a couple of girls, and it got dark, and it got really dark. It got pitch dark, and we, we lost our way to the camp. The darkness wasn't nearly as scary as the realization that I didn't know which way I was going. And it dawned on me that while we were trying to find the camp, the camp was probably trying to find me. And my whole purpose for living was to be found The Apostle Paul gives us his own purpose statement where we left off in our study of Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 9 when he says, I want to be found in him. And that's Paul's purpose, to be found in Jesus and to know him experientially. Here's the text, verse 9, and to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and 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 may share in his suffering. Some of your Bibles say fellowship. It's that word koinonia. We keep bumping up against the word koinonia, fellowship. And here it is again, to fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's Paul's purpose statement, to be found in him and to know him experientially. Imagine the horror that a mother experienced when she was at a conference in a church one day and her eight-year-old son who was playing outside suddenly vanished. And I mean vanished. Dozens were dispatched to look for the little guy. The police were called. Minutes seemed to turn into hours. And the horror of that mother found only one purpose in her soul, and that was that her son be found. Now, Paul has given us his purpose statement. And it's a beautiful expression. I want to be found in him. And the clear implication is that if you're not found, you're you're lost. 
And some of you are lost here today. There's no question in my mind that some of you are lost. You're just not aware of it. How can you be found in Jesus? That's the question the text is begging this morning. How can you be found in Jesus? And the answers are right out of the text, as you would expect them to be. And the first answer is, the way you're found in Jesus is by renouncing your own righteousness. Isn't that what he says? I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. My own righteousness? I mean, bragging about your own personal righteousness in, relation, uh, in order to have a relationship with God is a little bit like Br- uh, Pastor Brad Posley bragging about his golf game. I, I mean, he like all of the pastors on staff, we rarely golf. We like to, but we don't golf very often. So at the men's retreat last year, he was hacking it up. And he was with a couple of good golfers. And uh, he's just whacking around, going this way, maybe sometime missing it all together. And he's all but cursing himself as he goes. And Steve Haug, one of our own guys, and a decent golfer, puts his hand on, on Brad's shoulder and goes, Brad, you're not good enough to complain about your golf game. <laughs> How would you like to have that? I'm glad it was him and not me. Now, I'm not all-knowing, but I'm going to guess that most of us here today, if not all of us, would say, I'm not good enough to complain about my attempts at the Christian life. Can I get an amen to that? Me either. But not the Apostle Paul. Remember from the message Brad preached last week, Paul's life seemed unassailable. He even identifies himself as blameless concerning the things according to the law. I mean, nobody talked about being blameless, but Paul did. But like Martin Luther, who would come 1,500 years later, that Augustinian monk, very religious guy, he, would, he too, like Paul, would realize that his goodness was not good enough. So self-righteousness, just to let you know, is not righteousness at all. Do you believe that? Well, here's what Paul said to the Romans. He said, referring to the Jews, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. For I, watch this, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. The word zeal means to be hot. They're hot for God. But not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about seeking their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Have you ever read that? This has always been true. And there are two scenes in the Old Testament that very powerfully and very vividly describe God's view of our self-righteousness, when we think our righteousness is good enough. One of them, a number of you are probably very familiar with, it's a famous line in Isaiah, who says, all of our righteousnesses are as what? Say it. Filthy rags. The word filthy is a very descriptive, disgusting word. But again, we're getting God's view. You say, well, what's wrong with doing good stuff? Nothing, but when, you, when, you're, when you're relying on your goodness, your righteousness to, get, to, to, to earn a standing with God, this is disgusting to God. But the most vivid, the most powerful illustration in Scripture is found in 
at, toward the end of the Old Testament in the, in the book of Zechariah. You don't need to go there, but you can make a mental note. It's in chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, you have, Zechariah is a series of visions. Now, visions are not, they're God gives these visions, and what you're getting in these visions are God's view, God's perspective of what you look like, what I look like when we're trusting in ourselves. And in the vision, you have a courtroom scene in heaven. It's very powerful. God the Father's the judge. You have the defendant. The defendant is Joshua, who is not that Joshua who followed Moses, but Joshua, sometimes called Jeshua. He was the high priest at that time. Now, high priest was the holiest guy in town. He was the most important man in all of Israel. He actually represented the children of Israel to God, and he's being put on trial in the vision. In the vision, right to his right, and that's where the prosecuting attorney would be, is none other than Satan. And he's named in the passage as accusing, which is what Satan does, right? He is the prosecuting attorney accusing Jeshua, the high priest. Powerful scene. Keep in mind that Joshua, or Jeshua, the high priest, is has priestly garments on, but from God's perspective, it's, it's disgusting. In fact, he, look at the scripture. Here's what it says. Now Jeshua, or Joshua was dressed in, say it, filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Now, he would never have done that. But from God's perspective, he had filthy clothes. By the way, this is a different word than the word used in Isaiah equally disgusting, maybe even then some, because the word filthy literally means, are you ready for this? It literally means to be covered with excrement. Now, is that disgusting for you? Now, no one would ever dress like this, but from God's perspective, this is what he looked like. And the accuser of the brethren, Satan, is pointing out all of his sins. And this is the way it is. Disgusting as it may seem, Until we see ourselves as filthy before a holy God and renounce our own righteousness, we will never put on the clothing that God, we'll never take off the the unrighteous clothing and we'll never put on the clothing that God is offering. And herein lies the problem. Some of you are just so comfortable in your own clothing. Disgusting though it may be from the eyes of a holy God. So you want to know how you can be found in Jesus? The very first thing is to renounce your own personal righteousness. Are you willing to do that today? Secondly is just contrarize. You receive his righteousness. Again, back to the text. I I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of, of my own, which is in accordance with the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ that's how we get it. This is, how, this is what you need. This is what I need. Now, back to that vision of Zechariah. Remember, he's, from God's perspective, he's covered in filth. God does something amazing in that passage. He rebukes Satan not once, but twice. He rebukes him. And then he takes the disgusting garments off in the vision Joshua, and puts on 
clean raiment. Here's how the scripture puts it. Remove his filthy clothes, God demands. Then he, says to, he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I've put fine garments on you. This is a picture of the gospel. Just the other day, my wife and I have been working with a couple. They were in the second service today. And with her permission, I can share this with you. Uh, we've been meeting for about a month. And after one of our studies here just a week or so ago, uh, I could tell God was working on both of them. And I said, well, what do you think? And she goes, oh, I'm ready. He's not, but I'm ready. <laughs> I said, okay, I will, you know, what are you ready for? She goes, I'm ready to get rid of my filthy self-righteousness and put on the righteousness of Jesus. I think she got it. I think she got it. And in tears and humility, she repented of her sin and placed her faith in Jesus. And guess what? Her husband followed suit just the other day. If you want to be found in Christ, then you got to renounce your own worthiness because you don't have any. You got to renounce your own righteousness because you don't have any. And you got to receive the righteousness of Jesus. And by the way, from the beginning, from time immortal, this has always been the way it is. From, from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned, remember they clothed themselves with the garments of what Eden provided. Do you remember that? They clothed themselves with foliage, and yet the passage tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that God had to, gave them skins to wear. In other words, something had to die in their place. They had to remove their own clothing, their own, that which symbolized their own righteousness, and take on God's. That's always been the way it is. And this is what Paul meant theologically when he said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become, what? Sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God, what? In him, right? In Jesus, that is. So you want to be found in Jesus, then you need to do those two things. You need to renounce your own righteousness, receive his righteousness, and then by knowing him experientially. You say, how does this have to do with being found in Christ? Everybody who comes to know Jesus comes to know Jesus. So Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, and I want to, notice verse 10, I want to know him. See that? He didn't say I want to know about him. I don't want to just have a bunch of facts. I want to know him. My son was over the other day with his little family, and we were watching our favorite team get it handed to him. And while we were watching, but he knew all kinds of facts about the, about the defense on the other team, and he was naming names and telling me all kinds of personal facts about this guy, about these guys. I mean, you would have thought he knew them, but I knew he didn't know them. He just knew facts about them. See, that's the way it is for some of you with Jesus. You could tell me all kinds of facts about him, but you don't know him. Hey, think about this for a moment, will you? Paul says, I want to know him. The year was 62 AD when he wrote to the Philippians. Paul had already known him for three decades. He'd known Jesus for some 30 years. And what is he saying? I still want to know him. I still need to know him. It's still my desire. 
My wife and I, uh, a couple weeks ago, pulled up Netflix and started watching The Blacklist. Now, The Blacklist is centered around this character. His name is Raymond Remington. And he's, a, he's sort of a criminal genius. And he sort of knows all kinds of trivial knowledge, knows a little bit of this and that. He's just a good actor. And the other day, we were watching one program, and he says this. He says, studies show that any, at any given moment, the average person is keeping 13 secrets. I went, I looked over at my wife. I said, oh, man, it's, it's just a show. It's just a show. That's right. I don't even know if that's true, but if it is, it can't be good for a relationship, can it? Speaking of secrets, here's how the psalmist put it. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Have you ever read that? To fear God doesn't mean just a cower. It means to have this this sense of awe about him, his greatness, his glory, his, his omniscience of you. And the response is you love him more and you want to know him more. And when you live in the fear of the Lord, then the Lord will continuously make himself known to you, reveal himself to you. This is what Jesus meant when he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I'll love him too. And I will disclose, I'll manifest myself to him. Have you ever read that? Sure, yeah, many of you. Now, the word for know here, when he says, I want to know him in verse 10, it's a very common word in the New Testament. It's the word gnosko. But I tell you that because the word is filled with, it also has uh, Greek, or not Greek, but Hebrew philosophy woven into it. The Hebrews had a line. They, They would say, I know, therefore I do. The Hebrews never wanted to take knowledge as just being bookish, just to you know, build up facts. The word gnosko means to have experiential knowledge, not just bookish knowledge. We've all, we've all met the smartest guy in the room that isn't always the wisest guy, right? I, re- I remember several years ago, I was in a, a church uh, we were attending when I was a student, and the pastor, it was during the midweek service, and the pastor invited his old pastor, who was now retired, I mean, he's older than dust even then, to come up and, and speak to us. And so this guy kind of walked up, he's got to be with the Lord, he's really old, and he started by saying, he goes, I'm just a Southern Baptist. He goes, you know, we Southern Baptists, we don't know much. And then he leaned in the pulpit, and he goes, but what we know, we sow. I thought that was pretty clever. You know what he was saying? Gnosko. He was saying, I don't just want to have knowledge. I want to apply that knowledge. I want to know the knowledge. I want to know the one who gives the knowledge. I want to know him. That's the idea here in the word Gnosko. Most of us who've been married for a long period of time, you, you got to know your spouse. You roll with the punches. You, hopefully you don't have any punches, but you have, you know, you, you go through all kinds of things, you get to know and love them more, right? Because of just time. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, I'm pursuing the one who, while possessing all knowledge of me, continuously dispenses and reveals himself to me. That's what he's saying. 
And that's what he meant when he said, we all with unveiled face, beholding as, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one level of glory to the next, even by the spirit of the Lord. Paul's purpose statement, to be found in him and to know him experientially. So how exactly does that work? How exactly do we know Jesus experientially? Well, he tells us. He says, first of all, I want to know the power of his <clears throat> resurrection. You see it there? The power of his resurrection. The psalmist says that power belongs to God, especially resurrection power. God alone can take dead things and make them alive. Jesus is God. And he said, I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to raise it up again. He could, he did, and he can, and he will in your life. Because some of you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And if you'll place your faith in Jesus for real, he'll give you that resurrection power. You will be able to experience it in your own life. It's that life change. You become the new creation in Christ. As Paul said to the Romans, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. It was pictured in the baptismal just a little bit ago with Jesse. It's reality for those who are found and know Jesus. Is it yours? Is it your reality? How exactly do we know Jesus? How, how is this knowing going on? He said, well, I want to experience the power of resur his resurrection. And then, watch this, the fellowship of his sufferings. The ESV says sharing in. It's that word we keep bumping up against it, koinonia, to share with, to partner with. He said, I want to partner with his sufferings. Which, and Paul wasn't a masochist here. But he did repeatedly experience, and we are talking about experiential knowledge, right? He did repeatedly experience the joy of the grace of God in the midst of suffering. Because it was Paul who said, when he asked Jesus three times to take away the thorn that he had in his flesh, he, Jesus said, you don't need it. What you need is my grace. That's sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul responds, he says, therefore I will glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may what? May, may rest upon me. And that's what happens when we enter into this kind of fellowship with Jesus, into this kind of knowing, experiential knowing of Jesus. We enter into that power that comes through the resurrection, and we experience through suffering, whatever it may be, a more closeness with him. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul says, you know, I'm incarcerated here, but hey, good deal. Because I'm incarcerated, the brethren are spreading the gospel all over the place. Remember that? I love the way John Piper put it. He said, Christ's sufferings were for propitiation, ours for propagation. Nice turn of phrase, and very true. But more than that, when we suffer, we draw near, plain and simple, to Jesus. 
Our Kent Hughes put it like this, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings moved the believer beyond the role of beneficiary of Christ's death to a sharer in his sufferings. Let's not kid ourselves. We're not living in Mogadishu. We're not embedded in some radical Islamic country. This is America where you don't suffer for your faith, not that often anyway. I was in a coffee shop just the other day, and this woman walks by me, and she gestured, wanted to know if she could sit in the chair that was near me. I said, I gestured back. She could. She sat down. I was in the midst of a, of a gospel conversation with somebody uh, using my phone, and she looked. Within one minute, she heard me mention Jesus and what Christ can do, and she looks over at me, glared at me, huffed, got up and walked across the room and sat in another chair. Well, let me tell you something. That's not suffering. That's not suffering. Now, you know, a little ridicule, I guess. A little reminder that not everybody loves the gospel. By the way, I don't know if you guys are following the passage, but doesn't it seem like Paul's got this thing kind of messed up? It's a little inverted, isn't it? He says, I, I want to know him, and then he says, I want to know the, the power of his resurrection, and then the fellowship with his sufferings. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Doesn't suffering precede the glory of the re- Huh? It did for Jesus. He suffered, then he rose. But not for you if you're a Christian. It's just the other way around. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you are given resurrection power. In fact, that word for power is that word for dynamite. You're given resurrection dynamite. And then, now listen carefully to this, then you are given the capability from God, the Holy Spirit, to endure rejection and ridicule and even hurt if necessary. And hence the order. He says, so, so that I could become like him. Look at that, become like him. In death. That's, that's where we're going. If this is our purpose, to be found and know Jesus, to be like him in his death. Paul said to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, right? Nevertheless, I, I live. Not I. But Christ lives what? He lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now just drink in that for just a little bit. Think on that if you would. Remember again, this is Paul who said to the Philippians in chapter one and verse 29, listen carefully to these words. It has been granted unto you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Now, while I don't know of anybody here being persecuted for their faith, I'm sure many of you, or some of you at least, I know, I know, I know some of you are suffering, and you're doing so righteously. You're suffering physically with some physical malady that you're dealing with. Some of you are suffering because you've been estranged from someone that you love. Some of you are suffering because you've been separated or divorced or or somebody close to you died. And there is a real suffering going on. There is a real mourning. There's a real loss. It's genuine. It's real. Don't deny it. Don't deny it. Embrace it as a granting from God. Hear me. Hear me as a granting from God. It has been granted unto you in behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Have you ever looked at your suffering as a grant? 
from God that had the intention of allowing you not just to be found in Jesus, but to know him more deeply. I was on the elliptical the other day, woman right next to me, I got to know her a little bit through, you know, the, the whole fitness world thing. And she's really hurting. Her husband just, her husband left her for another woman. She loves Jesus. And I shared this truth with her that's been granted unto her on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And I could, I watched this woman literally drink that truth in. She just drank it in. And you should drink it in as well because it's all by design. It's all by God's loving hand, even though it doesn't feel loving sometimes, all by design and sowing that into your heart and into your life. And so he goes on and he says, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, which is a strange way. He's already talked about the power of the resurrection. He says, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. By the way, this is the only time this word resurrection occurs in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's the same word as the one used earlier, but it has a little Greek prefix, the word out, like exit, out. It literally, it literally is translated out resurrection. Jesus' resurrection power is the very cause by which we stand out in the world, if we stand out at all. Because the ultimate outcome is guaranteed if we know him, amen? To be raised again. So the only question I have for you this morning is this. Do you know him? Do you know him? I went to the University of Northern Iowa several years ago, and, and though I didn't take this class, there was a class called Visual World. And the professor there is a woman. She, she did what she called the lemon experiment. experiment. Yeah, she had 20 students, 20 lemons. Everyone came up and grabbed a lemon. She said, here's the deal. You want to pass the class? And they're all going, yeah. Then here's what you got to do. You got you to get to know this lemon. The whole idea was to prove that seeing could produce knowing. I want you to look at it. I want you to feel it. I want you to smell it. I want you to go to bed with this lemon, she said. You want to pass the tech? Yeah, I want to pass. That was on Monday. On Wednesday, the teacher, without warning, asked them all to put all of their lemons into this paper bag, which they did. And then she shuffled them up, and she goes, now come and get your lemons. Without hesitation, every one of them went up, looked through, got their lemon, absolutely certain that was their lemon. Now, if a college student can know a lemon after hanging out with it for three days, how much more do we get to know Jesus hanging out with him all of our lives? Remember the little boy that was lost? While his mother was in a conference, that happened right here at this church. Conference going on in here. Little Owen Bear was outside playing and vanished. Dozens dispatched, police called, scouring the countryside. Nate Worsham decided to take a walk in the woods east of here. Went deep into the woods and found him. Nate goes, Owen, what are you doing? You're lost. Everybody's been looking for you. The police have been called. Your mom is beside herself. And Owen looks up and goes, 
I'm not lost, I'm just looking for squirrels. Now think about that. There he was lost, deep in the woods, not a care in the world, the world, his anyway, was frantically scouring the planet, searching, agonizing, crying out for him and crying up to God up to God to find him. And he was the only one in the world who didn't know he was lost. I'm telling you right now, there are a number of you in this room who are lost. You're just not aware of it yet. You don't have a care in the world, but you're lost, and only Jesus can find you. And if you'll humble yourself, the Spirit of God has spoke to your heart today, say, that's me, I'm not a Christian, I, I know about Jesus, I don't know him, then recognize that. Humble your heart and receive him as your savior. Do you know him? God, thank you. Thank you so much for this time that we could spend in your word and see this great purpose statement of the apostle Paul, may it be ours to be found in you and to know you experientially. I pray for those who are still lost but just unaware of it. And if that's you, dear friend, you would say, that's me. I don't, I don't want to be deep in my own woods. I want to know Jesus. Would you do like you heard Jesse and a few others in the services before this. Acknowledge your sin. Renounce your self-righteousness. Receive his righteousness. And begin the lifelong joy of knowing him. Would you do that? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.